0: We're in Luke chapter 6, verses 36 through 38 this morning. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible, page 862 in the Bible, in the chairs, or you can follow along on our version Live event. We've got a lot to do today, so we're going to jump right in. As you're kind of turning there, I'm going to set you up with a, a review, because the reality is if we step into this passage in verse 36 and, and don't consider where we've been, there is a reality that we're going to misunderstand it and think that this that this idea of, of merciful love or this idea of judging people lives in exile, kind of lives as an island to itself, and that is not true at all. In fact, the reality is, as you'll see today, I, th- I think you'll see today, if I do my job today, you will see it today, that we have been called not uh, to, to judge not is actually an expression of loving people. And so that's, that's what we're going to see, that's what we're going to deal with. But as we get there, I just wanna, want you to see the components of Christ-like love that we've been Studying, and so we 're just going to hit them real fast i 'm not going to go into a lot of detail. I would encourage you to go back if you 've missed I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the sermons online, uh, but but we have seen as we have studied this love, this christ like love for our enemies that we have been called to, we have seen the active nature of this love, an active choice of our will to function for someone else's good, to be beneficial to them, to be good towards them, to speak truth. "...with grace blessing them with our words, and even petitioning or praying for them on their behalf, standing before God on their behalf, and asking for His good and for His justice as He sees fit, seeking hopefully and longing for not just His justice but also His mercy." And we also have spoken about we, Jesus didn't just leave us thinking about how we actively love people, but he, he helped us see how we react to people. And these are our enemies, when they offend us, when they hurt us, how do we react? And so He calls us not to humiliate when we've been humiliated. He calls us to, to accept the cost on another's behalf, and he has called us to live with generosity. We'll see these kind of play out even further today. We can sum these three ideas up with, with one idea, with, with one perspective. Is that we are not to seek vengeance. If we are going to love people like Christ has loved us, we are not to seek vengeance. The reality is, is as we react, we're supposed to enact that very active love that we have already been called to. So we're praying, doing good, and blessing, and, and seeking their best interest. And last week, as we walked through the Golden Rule and all the reasons why this is so important that we do this, we looked at the proactive nature of Christ like love. I want to I want to call this out so that you see it because we're gonna, we're going to kind of stop with this active word, this this play on the word active today, but but realize, and recognize love does something, right? I mean, it doesn't it's not just a feeling and emotion that we have inside of ourselves. Love acts. And so we have the active nature, we have the reactive nature, and we have the proactive nature. And that is to love our enemies like Jesus has loved us. We must be proactively, sacrificially and beneficially acting in their best interest. Love actually does something. As we do this, as we love people like this, we step into the mission that Christ has himself, we're joining him in his mission. We are joining him and walking alongside him and loving others as he has loved us. This makes us distinct. It makes us different than everybody else in the world. We see this. We see this this, this this way that, that the world loves reciprocally, like re, with reciprocity. If you'll just love me, I'll love you back. But but Christ is saying love people even when they don't. And it, not only does it make us distinct and not only does it join us together in his mission, but it's where we experience the depth of his love. We don't know what Christ's love is like until we begin to express this selfless, active, sacrificial, beneficial good will for another person. Until we actually put that into action, it is impossible for us to really understand what his love is like. We can talk about it. You can hear me speak about it. But until you actually begin to do it, it is impossible for you to know it other than in theory. It actually enables us to experience his love more deeply. And as we saw last week, it identifies us as his children. There's a reality that that if you are capable of loving people like this, this is not the trait that saved you, but it is a trait that marks you as one who has been saved. It is a trait that is specifically reserved for and and only alive in people who have been loved by Christ. This is is what he's teaching us. This is what he's calling us to. As as we love like this, he's he's calling us to express the life within us on behalf of those around us. And this is our hope. This is the assurance that he gives us, is that if we have this capacity, if if we have this ability, then we have been loved like this. But we also have the warning. And all the way through this sermon that we have been studying, we have been seeing those assurances and warnings, and that will be no different uh, for us today as we begin to consider one more aspect of this Christ-like love, this, this call to love our enemies. And we're going to study from Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 36. We'll read through verse 38. Jesus says, be merciful." even as your Father is merciful. I want to just highlight, this is, this is not necessarily part of the sermon, but I, you, you can't miss this. We are identified, He is our Father. We're not just citizens in the kingdom that He is establishing, this counterculture, counterintuitive counter-intuitive system and kingdom. He's, he, he, he's not just identifying us as citizens in that kingdom, He's identifying us as children of the King. This, that's a big difference. We have rights, and we have blessings, and we have, and we have access that, that no other person in the world has except that we are his children, and he is our father. Now, it's important that we see this, because you need to know this. I didn't come up with the idea of calling God Father. Like, this is not some religious outworking. This is not some way that we can just make ourselves feel good about this. This is Jesus Who calls God Father, saying He is your Father. And He is a good Father. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Verse 37, judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Yeah, that's a promise. For with the measure you use, it will be <laughs> measured back to you. Verse thirty six calls us to merciful, mer- merciful, be, being merciful like the Father. Our Father is. Merciful. To be merciful means to be compassionate. And this is the aspect of the love that we're really discussing. The compassionate nature of Christ-like love. This is the, 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 the trait of Christ-like love that we're exploring today. And as we look at compassion, as we, as we talk about it, you, you need to realize it's more than just feeling bad for someone's situation or circumstance. It, it, it isn't just merely flipping through Facebook and seeing a video and watching it and tearing up and feeling some level of sympathy for them or, or flipping through channels on the television. You've probably all seen the commercial where they're showing the pictures of the animals who have been mistreated and Sarah McLachlan's in the background singing, in the arms of an angel. And you got this tug at your heart, right? And, and then the commercial ends and you've done Nothing. Like you felt sympathetic about it, but you've not been compassionate, or not in the sense that this is calling us to. We've not been merciful in the sense that this has called us to. Now, if you've watched those commercials and you've not felt sympathy, then you can't really identify here. But but think of something that's made you feel bad for someone else. But if you've done nothing, then you haven't really then you haven't really felt this compassion or or enacted this mercy. The mercy Jesus is calling to is calling us to is it includes this kind of sympathy, it includes this kind of this sympathetic feeling, but goes beyond that. Filled with sympathy, just full up with sympathy, the mercy that Jesus calls us to expresses itself in words and in deeds. That's how we know that this passage is not an isolation. In fact, one of, the, one of the struggles that we'll always face as we read our Bibles, if you read in the ESV, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. If, if not, it may have it divided out a little differently. But, but in my Bible, I have this place where it says, love your enemies, and I come down, and verse 36 is the very end of a section, and then it goes on to something else. Those headings are not, they're, they're not Bible. And so what we end up thinking is, oh, this is a whole new idea. But it's not a whole new idea. This is the act of sacrificial beneficial action, which is Christ-like love that we have been being called to for our enemies. This is exactly the same thing. It's just summarized and and taught with a different perspective. The reality is is that this love and these enemies that we're supposed to love are not just the people who would would shoot at us and, and kill us if they could. These enemies are people who offend us and who who in many ways are an offense to God and thereby are our enemies. And what has happened when you have been been reconciled unto God, being made distinct from the world, we are set apart from the world. And so they they are not our enemy in the direct sense, but they are opposed to God in their life. But Jesus is keeping us from treating them as if they are enemies. He's calling us to be merciful to them. In fact, he's calling us to be merciful in a way that our Father in heaven has been merciful to us. God's mercy is not revealed by bad feelings about our circumstances or situations not like he's sitting in heaven and thinking, man, those poor souls. I just wish somebody would do something for them. That's not it at all. You know, he, he, he's not looking down and thinking, man, they're, they're just powerless to take care of this themselves or, or, or even undeserving to have this taken care of them. Even if they could do something on their own, they don't really deserve it. These poor souls See, in salvation, God, God mercifully, without any obligation, God mercifully comes in. He, he, he has compassion on us. He feels sympathy for us. And then he begins to step in and he actually begins to work justice for us. See, that's there's this idea, and and, and, and for too long I had this, these ideas separated. And and, and and I had this idea that mercy was simply withholding what we deserve. Grace was giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding what we do deserve. And I was always thinking of this withholding nature. But the mercy that God has given us is not just about withholding. It's wrapped up together with the justice or the price he paid for us. And then he graciously extends it to us even though we don't deserve it. See, he did all of this work on our behalf Not because of who we are, but because of who he is merciful. Even more than the work itself being merciful, we need to note the greatness of his mercy. Just how big it literally is. How big it actually is. It's no small thing that the creator God of all the universe that had every right to end it in the garden. At the moment of rebellion, he had every right not to step in and ask Adam questions but rather to crush him then, just without thinking twice. He intimately involves himself with the process, bringing relief by, by giving us justice. You see the distinction. This is active. This is, this is, this is sacrificial. I love how R.C. Sproul refers to how great this mercy is. He says, God doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. Like that's the bare minimum, right? God doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls the corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the brink, on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. You see, we were the dead folks on the bottom of the sea. He didn't just throw you a life preserver hoping you'd make it. He jumped in, he dived to the bottom. And He got you and He brought you up and He breathed life into you. He has been merciful to each and every one of us that have been made His children. This is why Peter, writing to the scattered and suffering church in Asia Minor, says this in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's an exclamation of of celebration and praise and worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because according to His great mercy, the bigness, the breadth, the height, the width, the depth, the the hugeness of this mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the mercy that He has bestowed on you. This is the mercy that washes over you. We focus so often on His grace, and, and please don't deny The beauty of His grace. Continue to sing the song Amazing Grace. Continue to think of how special His grace is. The unobligated, undeserved, unearned uh, uh, benefit on our behalf. Don't, don't, Don't stop. But think of the mercy, the compassion, the sympathy that motivates Him to make us just. That actually motivates Him to provide justice. This is exactly what it was, he's calling us to. In fact, I'm, he's calling us to imitate our Father. And, and he's actually not just saying make choices to do it, but he's helping us see that this should be the natural, begin to be the natural default way that we live with other people. In fact, he begins to show us that this is rea- the reality of the way that we know that we are his. Amy and I were at a uh, deal last night with her family, her side of the family, and 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 all the kids were there, the the cousins uh, from both sides, and, and my, my, my kids were there, which they don't really look like kids anymore, but, you know, they're my kids, and they were running around with all the kids and acting foolish like kids, so that's just, we'll just leave it at that, but but anyway, it's funny because my sister-in-law, Laura, says that's such a Seth thing to do. And I know that they're not trying to be like me. It's just natural. At some point in life, even some of the traits that we don't necessarily appreciate about our parents, at some point in life, we begin to emulate them. They begin to come out of us. And pretty soon you find yourself saying something that you were, that, that, that somebody said, said, your parents said to you while you were a kid. Did that just come out of my mouth? I'm not about to tell my mom that. I'm not about to go back and admit that she was right. You see, this is the reality of what he's saying, is that yes, we are called to this. Yes, we should pursue this. Yes, we ought to give attention to this. We ought to enact it in our life. But it should be the natural flow. It should just begin to be what is seen in us. I mean, he doesn't leave us wondering about specifics. I don't think he gives us an exhaustive list of what this looks like. But I think in his following statements, in the statements in verses 37 and 38, he gives us two positive commands, two negative commands, that help us understand what it means to be merciful as our Father is merciful. And that's really what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. And there's so much here. I mean, I really wrestled with whether or not I should do this over two sermons instead of one. But, but we're going to push through, and, 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 and I pray that the Spirit will just give you the insight the first two commands, we're going to deal with them together because they're so similar. Verse 37, he says, judge not. And he says, condemn not. And in a lot of ways, they're very similar. One would be an extension or maybe going a step further. Condemning might be going a step further than, condemn, or, or than judging. But the reality is that he's calling us to not do the same thing. Two, two negative commands. Don't judge and don't condemn. <clears throat> Here's the problem we face. This is one of the most popular commands in all of the Scripture. One of the most popular verses, you know. This is the, this is the place that even those people who aren't Christian know it. it Maybe may right next to, like, John 3.16. So so everybody knows John 3.16. They know the, at least in America, I shouldn't say everybody, but people in America know John 3.16, and they even know the address. You know, they know that, for God so loved the world, that who... He gave his only begotten son. They probably know it in King James. I don't, know if, I don't know if I know it in King James, but they probably know it in King James because that's the way it's been recited for so many years in so many homes. But they probably know the address because, you know, you see it on a uh, 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 sporting event, like at the football game. You know, you're watching TV, you see it on the football game, somebody's standing there with their John 3.16 sign. You know, they, they skipped church to go to the game on Sunday, and then they wanted to justify their reason for being there. So to be a missionary, they stuck up John 3.16. They didn't give any reference or any proclamation of the gospel, but now they feel better about being there. See, I just judged somebody, and you guys laughed with me, and you just joined me in it. But this is not what we're supposed to do. But the reality is, is that people... People know this verse, but they know this verse because they don't want you to call them on their sin. Because none of us like having our sin called out. None of us like being confronted in our sin. But Jesus is not calling us. We must understand this. We we have to get this. Jesus is not calling us to not be critical thinkers. to to, To not look at something and see it as sinful or not sinful. He gives us plenty of expression in the scripture to know what is sinful and what's not sinful. And he's not telling us to ignore that or to keep it silent. But people don't like that but even those who would say hey you're not supposed to judge me you're judgmental bigot who you think you are telling me how to live my life even they judge they judge in the way they don't want to be judged let me just think about it child porn sex trafficking child molestation Not many people are going to get on board with that kind of stuff. And if they do, there's going to be a common recognition that there's something wrong. In fact, I saw a video, one of these videos that put a little sympathy in my heart, but I didn't do much about it. It didn't really give me. You'll see, there was was um, an inmate that was being tried. He He was a prisoner in prison being tried for murdering his cellmate, and he pled guilty, and the and he was given an opportunity to say, why he killed the guy? He said, because he told me he molested children. So even, a, even among those who are committing evil or, or breaking laws or living sinfully, even among those people, there's a recognition that these things are not right. And there should be some level of consequence in their life. And this, this particular man determined that, you know what, I'm going to take it off on myself. So he got out of his bunk and he choked him to death. I think Jesus is telling us not to do that at a minimum drunk driver gets in an accident kills someone we're we're fine with the consequences that come out of that we have laws against that because we know it's it's a bad thing about a guy goes into a movie theater and begins to shoot people that's real life stuff And there's a reaction in our culture because everyone knows there's something absolutely wrong with these things. These have all been pretty straightforward, though. You see, it gets a little little tougher to deal with this when all of a sudden the popular culture has determined that something sinful is no longer sinful. When they've determined something that God has said is wrong, when they've determined that it's right. Sex outside of marriage. I was actually confronted one time about a sermon I preached and how I probably pushed somebody away because they were living together. I know it was true, but man, if you hadn't said it, they'd probably come back to the church. I talked about it, but then I offered hope on the other side, offered grace. But our culture is not about that. Homosexuality, big issue in our culture today and to talk about the sin that resides within a person's heart that leads them into homosexuality and the sin of homosexuality? Same-sex marriage. You see, these are gray areas in our culture, but they are not gray areas in the Scripture. And if we stand up and start talking about them We are worried about being condemned or offending or pushing people away because our culture has determined that you are not supposed to judge them. And they have a verse that sounds a lot like that. And it's like, wait a minute, okay, I've just got to keep my mouth shut. But Jesus is talking to us. He's teaching his disciples about loving their enemies because their life and their doctrine and their teaching is going to to take people off. It's going to make them mad. Peter's dealing, in 1 Peter, we, we referenced that. Peter's dealing with a suffering and scattered church because their teaching was in direct conflict with the culture that they lived in. We've got to get this. He is not calling us to to stay silent and not think critically about what is sin and what isn't. We shouldn't be making our own list of sins and bringing people against that list, but we should know what the Scripture says is sin and be able to speak about it and offer people hope in light of it. Judge not is not a call to not discern what is sinful in light of Scripture. Rather, it is a call to not react to sin as if there is no hope for the person in sin. perfect analogy, I think a perfect illustration for this. I'm not going to invite that person to church because their life would tell me they don't want anything to do with it. I'm not going to say anything about Jesus because they don't look like somebody that wants to hear about Jesus. What if the person or persons that were involved in leading you to the understanding of the gracious gift of God's salvation, determined that you just didn't want to hear it. That's a judgment based on someone's lifestyle that determines that they don't deserve or do they care about the hope that truly is available to them. It's not a call to not be critical, but rather to to not be hyper critical. We should avoid saying things that are untrue. We should avoid saying things that are unnecessary to be said, and we should be, avoid saying things that are unkind. But that doesn't mean that we should keep our mouth shut all together. John Stott has been particularly helpful to me in striving to make this distinction. This is from his, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He writes this, the follower of Jesus is still a critic in the sense of using his powers of discernment But not a judge in the sense of being censorious. I didn't know what censorious meant either. I went and looked it up, but then he gives an explanation. Censoriousness is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. It does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. To be censorious is to be a harsh judge. The censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. Like if you love pointing out how people are screwing up, like you take joy in that, you might be judging people. He puts the worst constructive, or construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. If you're a person who loves to receive mercy, but a person who will not give it away, then you might just be a censorious judge. You might just be a harsh critic. And that's what we are being warned against. That's what we are being called back from in this passage. Then John John Stott sums it up this way. To sum up the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers which help to distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God. That hits home. Because the reality is is that we're not just sitting and saying, hey, well that's sin. There's an answer for that. There's hope for that. That's sin. You don't deserve it. You're not going to get it. That's taking God's place. That's me determining who can be or should be saved. Anytime we put ourselves in this place, we're taking on his role. Jesus called us to be merciful like our Father is merciful. Think about his judgment. He has withheld it for generations. He speaks in Romans 3 about the sins that he overlooked for for the the sins in the past that he overlooked so that that he could get to Jesus. It starts all the way back in the garden. At the moment that that Adam and Eve sinned, they deserve death, but God doesn't come and kill them. That's not only an act of grace, it's an act of mercy that looks forward to the justice that He's going to provide through the cross of His Son. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is not rushing to judgment. He is providing every opportunity for salvation, for grace to invade a person's life. The people that that face Him and are judged by Him will have no excuse because all around them will be the light necessary for them to respond. This is the mercy that he's given away. And this is the mercy that we now enjoy the blessings of. And this is the mercy that he says, now you extend to others. Don't judge them. Don't condemn them. Instead, he says, forgive them. You see, this is the other side of that. But it's another big deal in our culture. We struggle so hard with the idea of forgiveness, we don't really understand what it means. We think that forgiveness is just like overlooking a sin and just, okay, well, we'll just sweep that under a rug. And, but then when we need it again, hey, don't you remember what happened back here? The idea of forgiveness it literally means to release this, this word. It means to release it's not just about excusing or overlooking sin and, 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 and then we oftentimes confuse it with the idea of, of if, I, if I just forgive that means we're reconciled like, like we just think that we equate forgiveness with reconciliation that's a misunderstanding of it it's a misunderstanding of reconciliation and reconciliation is the restoration of, of a relationship in which forgiveness is a part of the process but it's not the whole process Forgiveness is just one piece of the reconciliation equation. Forgiveness plus repentance equals reconciliation. It takes two people. It takes a person willing to forgive and a person willing to own their fault and their sin. Let's go back to the illustration I've spoken of it a number of times as we've we've dealt with this idea of love. Jesus hanging on the cross, looking down on these people who are crucifying them. Forgive them, Father, that they do not know what they're doing. We'd be naive to think that all of those people were reconciled to God. However, we'd be right in thinking that Jesus answered, or the Father answered the, the Son's prayer, in that God freely offers forgiveness to anyone who trusts in the sacrifice of the Son. There must be repentance to enjoy the reconciliation. And God isn't looking at you and saying, you must must reconcile. He's saying you must forgive, you must release, you must work it out in yourself. That there is no hard, uh, hard feelings, no harsh will. This is what he has been doing. This is what he did when we moved into salvation. As we repented, we were reconciled. Peace was brought between us. Peace was restored between our relationship and the Father's relationship no longer outcasts, no longer longer aliens. We are citizens and we are children. But this is what goes on every day in our relationship with him. That's why John was writing in his first letter talking about the sin of Christians. If you'll confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. There's a, a process by which he's, He is readily available. He is waiting for you to confess and repent that you might enjoy the fellowship and, the, rest, and, and, and the, the blessing of reconciliation that He has already given you. So really, we've got to think about then, what is forgiveness? Like, what is it really? Let's get a definition to it. Let's get an understanding of what we're doing. And so I would define it this way. The call to forgive is a call to refuse to make someone pay for what they have done to you. It is suffering with the pain and yet not seeking revenge. It's one part of the reconciliation equation. It's one part of that process of reconciliation. But it's your process to do. God's not saying you forgive them when they they come and repent to you. He's saying you forgive them. It's you determining in yourself to not excuse the sin or the offense that has been, uh, been waged against you. It's not a denial of the pain that was caused, but rather an acknowledgement of the depth of it. This is the, what we see in the cross. Our sin is absolutely offensive to a perfectly holy, eternal God. And it's so offensive that he killed his own son to see it paid for. That's why the cross had to be such a stark picture. Because sin is so absolutely offensive to God. But as he forgives, he doesn't doesn't ignore the the offense, he doesn't sweep it under a rug. He says, I'm going to nail it to this tree. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to hold it. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to suffer on, on, on its behalf. I'm going to deal with the pain that comes from it myself, and I am not going to retaliate or seek revenge. That is forgiveness. That is what He's called us to. Christians are not called to forgive others because it is deserved but rather because they have been forgiven by God themselves. You don't deserve to be forgiven by God, but you have been. I don't deserve to be forgiven by God, but by His work I have been. Because He is so merciful, I have been. Now he says you go and do the same thing. If you're having trouble forgiving others, take an honest look at yourself in front of this holy God. And if you're having trouble still seeing it, what you've been forgiven, then come and ask me for help. Now, I'm not saying that to be facetious or silly. I'm I'm being serious. I will show you some scriptures that show you the depth of our depravity. Every last one of us, we are deserving of death and condemnation and eternal separation. He is holy and perfect and righteous and just. And I'll show you that in the scripture. See, if you're struggling with this, you have too high a view of yourself or too low a view of God, and I can help you with that because I love you and I want you to experience the mercy that I've experienced so that you can express the mercy that you will then experience. If you want to know if you've forgiven someone, you'll know it when you can look at that person and long for their good. When you can actually quit thinking about the ill will between you You will know they are forgiven when you can actually begin doing something for their good. That is what we've been called to, not because it is deserved, but because it is what we have received. In the same way that the Father now looks at you and smiles upon you, even in the midst of your ongoing brokenness, He is pleased fully with you as His child. There is no need to be concerned that He is going to send you out of His presence. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can take away what He has done for you. He only longs for your good. When you can say that about the people that have hurt you and offended you, you will know you have forgiven as you have been forgiven. This is what it looks like. Not judging, being forgiving, being merciful like our Father. This is what it looks like. But we must include this last perspective, this last piece of being generous. God has been generous with his forgiveness. He has been generous with holding judgment, with providing justice. He has been so good to us, blessed us so completely. But again, we struggle with this idea. We, we, we run to poverty theology. Oh, well, being, being generous or, or being like God means I got to get rid of all my stuff. And we make it all about what we have. Or we run to the other extreme of what we have and we make it all about prosperity theology. If God loves me, if God's, if I'm doing all the right things, then God's gonna bless me, and I'm gonna have health and wealth, and I'm gonna have a big house and a, a fancy car with shiny rims and a, and, and, a, and a key that doesn't even have to plug in. You know, like I just gotta get close to the car, and, and it just wants to do things for me. That that's so far, that's missing the point of his generosity. It's missing it. Poverty theology, God never... He didn't save us so that we wouldn't have anything. He saved us so that we would be abundantly wealthy, that we'd have an inheritance to look forward to that would blow our minds if we would just stop and think about it for just a second. P- prosperity theology, it undermines the whole thing about what God has already done on our behalf. Oh, if you're, if you're good, then, then God will love you and He'll bless you with financial things. It totally denies what you've already been given. You have access to the Creator God of all the heavens. Not because you've been good, but because He's been merciful. What a misunderstanding of His generosity and and our call to generosity. What What a total misapplication. Christians are not called to either one of these ideas. We are called to a theology of generosity that looks like the Father's generosity. Doesn't tell us to go get rid of everything and but rather to work very hard in order to earn so that we can give money away or give more away. Not to work hard and gain so that we can have a little kingdom of our own. That's not what God did. Not what he did at all. He did a really tough work so that he could give it to those who don't deserve it. That's generosity. It highlights the usefulness and and the blessings of God's creation. The reality is the things that are in this world can be a good thing that we can use for His glory and the good of others. And they can be used for our good as well. And we must not just divest ourselves of them because they themselves are are sinful or bad. But we must use them for His glory. Glory, it highlights the sacrifice that God has made on our behalf. So you'll know when you're being generous when you can feel the sacrifice of it. When you can feel the loss on another person's behalf, that's when you'll know you're being generous. That's what we see happening Acts 2, 42 through 47. as As the church is being formed, as it's being birthed out of the proclamation of the gospel, people are selling the things that they have. And giving away the things, giving it away so that there's not a need within the church. They, they are giving up their stuff. Yes, they're giving up their stuff. doesn't mean they're giving everything away. And it's not called a call to socialism. It's a voluntary desire to be so concerned for another person that you would sacrifice so that they would benefit. That's generosity. That's what's happened on our behalf. Christians are called to be generous with others because God has been generous with us. You cannot outgive him. You cannot give away more than he can give you. You cannot come to a place where if you will be wise with the things he's given you, that you will all of a sudden find yourself without things to bless others with. It just might not be physical things. You will never run out of his grace. You will never run out of his mercy. You will never run out of his love. You will never run out of his attitude about a broken and sinful people. You will never run out of him. Now, there might be times where you are rich, and there might be times where you are poor, but if you are measuring God's love for you on those instances, then you are missing out on what he has done, and you have escaped into one of the ditches on either side of this road. Not escaped, driven off, crashed. We're called to be generous because he has been generous. David Mathis, writing for Desiring God, wrote this. The gospel opens our soul and with it our hands. Kent Hughes demonstrates the implication a little further, writing this There is no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. He says, We may know some Scrooges. I'm sorry. He says, We we may know some Scrooges who claim to be Christians, but I don't think you can claim to really know Christ and be a stingy person. Whether that's with your money and your things or with your faith and the love that you have received, as two diametrically opposed people. It doesn't work. If you ever need to consider just how generous God has been with you, that you can then extend that generosity two verses. Ephesians 1 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. With every. Every. That means all of them. That means there's nothing he's held back from you, them. Like there, there's nothing left that he could give you. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You, me, people who were dead in our sins. People who were pursuing the path of death. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted to us all things. All. Again, there's nothing left over. There's nothing like how He's like, like holding something back, and when they finally get this right, it's theirs. He has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. You have received abundantly. There is nothing in the kingdom of heaven that has been held back from you except the position of God. You have access to Him. You have access to His power. You are washed clean in His blood and and, 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 and immersed in His love and His grace and His mercy. And He is saying, now please give it away so that other people can know it. Who are we to think that we can hold on to that? Who are we to think that we should be building a kingdom of our own? Man, when we do this, when we do this, it's not like we're going to be receiving more, but we're going to be able to begin to realize how much we've been given. That's why Jesus says, as you do these things, the measure given to you will be the measure used pressed down, shaking, and running over. You see, the reality is, is this, is that I, I guess in this passage you could seemingly draw out this prosperity theology. You could somehow draw out that God will bless us if we do good things or God will give us more wealth if we, if we uh, give away some of our wealth. But there's this total overarching idea that's going on that you miss it. If you stop there, there's an assurance that runs all the way through this passage, and I just need to point it out in closing: judge not, you will not be judged, condemn not you will not be condemned, forgive and you will be forgiven, give and it will be given to you brothers and sisters, if you have the attitude, if you have the capacity in fact these are these 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 words judge, uh, condemn, forgive, and uh, uh, Forgive and give, these four words are are present active imperatives. It means that it's a command that you're supposed to do and keep doing, like you never stop. If you have the capacity to endure in not judging, in not condemning, if you have the capacity to continue to forgive even when offended multiple times, if you have the capacity to give and live generously all of your life, the reality is this, is that that is the mark of God on you. That is reason to celebrate because that is reason to be certain you are saved. Be assured in this. But on the flip side, if you come to a point where sin is too great that you cannot forgive, Where money is too desirous that you cannot give it away. Where someone is so sinful that you don't think they deserve you to say something about salvation to them. If you come to a line that you cannot cross, then you're either missing and misunderstanding what God has done for you. Brothers and sisters, let us help you in that. Or you have been doing it in your own power by religious effort all along. Be warned because the measure you use will be used against you. And it will either be the grace of God flowing through you or it will be the holiness and perfection of God standing in front of you. Be assured if you see it at work in you. Be warned if you're at the end of your rope. Let's pray. Father, help us Help us live this active and compassionate love. Help us be a people who move in this way. God, Help us. Thank you that we have opportunity to do it because of what you've done for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.